welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell. And I'm Faris Golden. We'll be your host today. A short while ago, I had the opportunity to hear Dr. Rudolf Tanzi, a professor at Harvard University who works on Alzheimer's disease, present on his work. And Dr. Tanzi has done a lot of work. He's one of the most prominent Alzheimer's researchers in the world. And in the middle of discussing all the results his lab has generated, Dr. Tanzi paused to discuss a recent paper in the journal Science. The results in that paper, said Dr. Tanzi, were miraculous and, I quote, the most remarkable pharmaceutical effect on amyloid ever. Dr. Tanzi has no financial stake in the drug used in that science paper, and he wasn't endorsing the approach taken by the authors of that paper. He's actually working on a number of competing or complementary clinical approaches. Our guest today is the first author of that paper that impressed Dr. Tanzi and so many in the Alzheimer's community so much. The paper is titled, APOE-Directed Therapeutics Rapidly Clear Beta Amyloid and Reverse Deficits in Alzheimer's Disease Mouse Models. Our guest today is Dr. Paige Kramer, a scientist for Receptor Incorporated, a company formed to further investigate the potential of bexerotine, the drug that has everyone in Alzheimer's research excited. Dr. Kramer, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Alzheimer's disease is a progressive neurological disorder that affects one in every five people over the age of 65. The risk of developing Alzheimer's doubles with every decade after the seventh. It is already an enormous public health issue, and with 71 million baby boomers approaching or recently reaching retirement, that issue is only going to get larger. Unfortunately, that's all true, but what's also true is that scientists have made enormous headway in understanding the causes and potentially combating the effects of Alzheimer's disease. For a long time now, we've known about two of the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's. These hallmarks are intracellular neurofibrillary tangles, composed of hyperphosphorylated isoforms of a protein called tau, and extracellular amyloid plaques, composed of a protein called beta amyloid, or amyloid beta, depending on who you're talking to. <laughs> right. And we also know some of how these hallmarks arise. For example, amyloid plaques form when monomers of beta amyloid, which are generally soluble, bind one another and form insoluble aggregates, eventually visible as plaques. And the solubility of beta amyloid is influenced by what beta amyloid you're talking about. Beta amyloid is formed by the cleavage of the amyloid precursor protein, or APP. This cleavage can occur at several sites within the amyloid precursor protein. If you're somewhat lucky, most of the cleavage will generate a 40 amino acid isoform of beta amyloid, or A-beta 1 to 40. If you're unlucky, a fraction of the cleavage events will generate a 42 amino acid isoform of beta amyloid, or A-beta 1 to 42. A-beta 1 to 42 is more likely to form aggregates than A-beta 1 to 40. What this means is if you have a high ratio of A-beta 1 to 42 versus A-beta 1 to 40, you are at a comparably higher risk of developing amyloid plaques in Alzheimer's disease. In fact, if you look at families with a history of early-onset Alzheimer's, where the disease strikes when you're in your 30s or 40s rather than in your 60s or 70s, you see mutations in proteins like the amyloid precursor protein or the presenilins, some of the proteins that help cleave APP to A-beta, that influence the ratio of A-beta 1 to 42 versus 1 to 40. Dr. Kramer, along with hundreds of scientists, used this information to generate mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. Here's Dr. Kramer talking about the mouse models she uses. These models are, are models of amyloidosis, um, and what that means is they have had in their genomes they have been uh, they've had inserted human genes into their mouse genome. The genes that have been inserted into the mouse genome are mutated in a way, um, and the mutations that have been uh, made 
uh, allow for the mouse to generate amyloid beta at a much higher rate. One is called the APPPS1 model. Um, it has both a mutation in the APP gene, with a, there's a Swedish mutation. It's a family in Sweden that was one of the familial Alzheimer's disease genes. So it in, in, uh, induces the formation of preferential cleavage to amyloid beta. Um, and then in addition to that, there's a presenilin uh, delta E9 mutation in that same mouse that generates more um, amyloid beta-42. Uh, so that's one model. So the other model we used is called the TG2576. And this model just has the APP Swedish mutation, so nothing else. And the, the last model is also called, it's called APPPS1-21. It was made by Matthias Euker. And this model has both mutations in APP as well as in presenilin that generate about six-fold higher amounts of amyloid beta specifically five times more amyloid beta-42 and one times higher amyloid beta-40. We believe it's the soluble amyloid beta that's causing the cognitive impairments. So what we have is just a model of amyloid. So it's an increase in soluble amyloid as well as an increase in plaques. There are no neurofibrillary tangles in the mouse models that we are using. So Dr. Kramer, in constructing our mouse models, is utilizing mutations in the amyloid precursor protein and the presenilins. Again, these genes are known to be involved in Alzheimer's disease because there are rare familial mutations in these genes that give rise to severe early-onset Alzheimer's. Mutations in these genes are not, however, the only mutations known to predispose someone to Alzheimer's disease. Another locus where mutations or genetic variants can confer risk is the alipoprotein E gene, or APOE. Here's what Dr. Kramer has to say about APOE. The APOE4 isoform has been uh, shown to be the greatest genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, such as having one copy of the disease makes you about three to four times more likely to get the disease. And if you have two copies, one from your mother, one from your father, you're about 12 times more likely to develop the disease. Um, so uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on, on your viewpoint at this point, is uh, the mouse models that we're using are strictly the mirroring model of APOE. Um, so that's a, something that we're interested in looking into, um, whether or not this drug has uh, differential effects on the, the three different human isoforms. There are mouse models that, can, that do have the APOE 2, 3, or 4 inserted into their, their endogenous APOE promoters. Um, but the mouse models that we're using do not have that. So to be clear, the mouse models Dr. Kramer is using make use of two of the three best-known genetic predispositions for Alzheimer's disease. These mouse models also develop amyloid plaques, one of the big hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease that we discussed earlier, and they have increased amounts of soluble A-beta, which Dr. Kramer, as she says, believes is the key factor in the cognitive impairment seen in Alzheimer's disease. But remember, we talked about two hallmarks of this disease, amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. And as Dr. Kramer said, her mouse models do not develop these neurofibrillary tangles. That's true, they don't. But it's an open question as to just how important the absence of neurofibrillary tangles is. Hyperphosphorylated tau, the backbone of neurofibrillary tangles, shows up in a number of neurodegenerative disorders. It's hard to look at that fact and say that the neurofibrillary tangles are at the root of Alzheimer's disease. On the flip side of things, however, when neurofibrillary tangles show up again and again in neurodegenerative diseases, it starts to look like maybe they play a role in causing that neurodegeneration. Again, definitely true, and I don't think there are many researchers who would argue that neurofibrillary tangles play no role in the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's. But actually, neurofibrillary tangles aren't even the most glaring thing missing from Dr. Kramer's mouse models. The Alzheimer's mice Dr. Kramer uses, and the mouse models used by a majority of Alzheimer's researchers, don't show neuron loss. 
Alzheimer's is a neurodegenerative disease. The degeneration includes the death of neurons. In humans, that cell death might occur after 60 or 70 years of life, but mice only live for about two years. It's likely that if they lived long enough, Dr. Kramer's mice would also exhibit neuron loss, and they might exhibit neurofibrillary tangles. Some of the most severe mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, the models where many of the alleles from several families with the earliest onset of phenotypes are put into one mouse. These models do show neuron loss. But there are also complicated models of the most extreme examples of Alzheimer's disease with highly deleterious mutations in a number of different genes. This makes it difficult, though not impossible, to draw conclusions from work with these models. That's right. But all of this is sort of missing the forest for the trees. If you want to have a good mouse model for Alzheimer's disease, you want those mice to develop Alzheimer's disease. Right. It sounds obvious. Right. And we already talked about the genetic and molecular background of these mice. Now let's get back to Dr. Kramer and let her talk about the behavior these mice exhibit. The, the mice have cognitive deficits as well as memory impairments, um, including um, one, one of which is including an, an associative behavior called nesting, which is also in the paper. Um, what, what's done here is uh, typically your garden variety mouse will uh, make a nest with some pressed paper. It'll chew it up and make a little burrow. And that, that effect is lost in the Alzheimer's mouse. Uh, however, if you treat that same mouse with the drug, um, then these mouse, these mice rather revert to a more garden variety mouse uh, type of burrow. So that's one type of behavior. They also have an olfaction behavior. So, just like people lose their sense of smell, the people who are suffering from Alzheimer's disease, so do mice. Um, that's something we've also tested. In addition to that, they have spatial memory issues, so they can't remember where things are located. Um, what we do is we put the mouse into a pool that has um, opaque water. Uh, we usually we put some paint in it. Um, it doesn't stick to the mouse, obviously. Um, and underneath, uh, somewhere in, in that pool, there's a, there's a platform. Mice typically don't like to swim. <laughs> So if they can find the platform, they will stand in, or they will sit on the platform. So the test um, involves repetitive trials and allow and allows the mice to find the platforms. Um, eventually, the mice um, that are uh, your garden variety mice swim right to the platform, and they are done within 10 seconds. The mice, however, that have Alzheimer's disease genes in them, don't find the plaques, and they swim for the minute-long trial. But those that are on the drug remember and swim to the platform. Contextual fear conditioning is another um, uh, study of memory. Um, what happens here is the mouse is placed into a box, into a, 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 another cage. Um, and in this cage, they're allowed to habituate for a certain amount of time. After that time, they receive a brief foot shock as well as a tone. And that is repeated three or four times. Um, the following day, the animals are put back into the same box and the amount of uh, freezing or the amount of, the amount of time spent frozen is recorded. So a mouse's natural fear instinct is to be still. And so if they can remember the fact that they were in this box before and they received an, an aversive shock, they should remember, hopefully, that if they go back into this box, um, it's not it, it's not a pleasant environment for them. So they end up freezing more. Um, and uh, yeah, so they, they quite well recapitulate the disease. So Dr. Kramer's mice exhibit behavioral phenotypes reminiscent of those shown by human Alzheimer's patients. Her mice have behavioral issues, olfactory issues, and they have spatial memory issues, and they have issues with contextual fear learning. More than that, as you might expect in a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease, these phenotypes are not immediately apparent. Just like in, in people, we have to wait for these mice to age. 
Uh, they don't show any behavioral impairments until, uh, depending on the model, six months or so. Uh, so it's, it's just like a human human where you have to wait and see uh, what the, the cognitive deficits are. And they, they do become more and more progressive. So the mice have progressive behavioral deficits similar to that seen in humans with Alzheimer's disease. But there's still allopoprotein E, a gene where some alleles predispose people towards Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, it's true that Dr. Kramer's mouse models do not have the apolipoprotein E allele that predisposes people to Alzheimer's, but many people who develop Alzheimer's disease also don't have that specific allele either. And Dr. Kramer definitely isn't ignoring APOE either. APOE actually is uh, what we believe our mechanism is for clearance of soluble amyloid beta. Um, so what the drug we're using is uh, called, it's called bexarotene or bexarotene, uh, and what it does is it actually enhances the expression of apolipoprotein E in the brain. Previous work in uh, Dr. Gary Lander's lab has shown that if you can increase APOE in the brain and you can increase the amount of phospholipids or, and, or cholesterol that APOE carries, you can actually facilitate clearance of amyloid beta out of the brain. Cholesterol and phospho, or at least cholesterol, is synthesized completely de novo in the brain. Uh, there's very little transport across the blood-brain barrier. Um, and so what we're interested in doing is just hyping up that system in the brain. I'm sure we're hyping it up in the periphery, uh, but the beneficial effects are, are mostly seen in the brain. To summarize what Dr. Kramer said, treating their mice with bexarotene makes the amount of APOE in the brain of those mice go up. Here's how that works and how that might help with Alzheimer's disease. So when we add or when we uh, treat our mice with bexarotene, what happens is that bexarotene is bound to RXR, retinoid X receptor. RXR is, a, is the obligate heterodimer partner for a variety of other nuclear receptors, one of which is the liver X receptor or LXR, and another is, uh, is called uh, peroxisome proliferator activated receptor or PPAR. And if RXR binds to either of those two other receptors, LXR or PPAR, um, we have shown that we can induce the expression of uh, apolipoprotein E as well as the um, phospholipid and cholesterol carriers, um, ABCA1 and ABCG1. What they do is they actually um, transport cholesterol and phospholipids onto the APOE particle itself. What generally happens is that as we can induce the expression of APOE, um, the ATP binding cassette transporter A1 or ABCA1 initially lipidates or carries, uh, transfers cholesterol and lipids onto the APOE particle. ABCG1 then comes in and further lipidates this particle, and it's known as now an HDL or high-density lipoprotein particle. And then what happens after that is as you can increase the size particle of APOE, there's more ability of amyloid beta to bind to this particle, and that can that we've shown can facilitate the degradation both intracellularly and extracellularly. So increasing the amount of APOE allows more A-beta to be picked up. After it's picked up by the high-density lipoproteins, it gets degraded. There are intracellular and extracellular mechanisms involved. What we've shown is that one of the cell types in the brain, uh, the, the brain's macrophage or microglia, have been shown to uh, degrade amyloid beta, as well as another cell type in the brain, astrocytes, um, have been shown to degrade amyloid beta intracellularly. Um, there's also an extracellular mechanism um, using insulin-degrading enzyme, or IDE. That's an extracellular mechanism that we didn't really get too much involved in, 
um, in this paper, we focus primarily on intracellular degradation. One thing that worried me about that portion is that they're using a drug, bixerotene, that works by activating a receptor with, as Dr. Kramer said, a large number of binding partners. We asked Dr. Kramer to explain how they knew that the effects that they see, which we'll get into in just a moment, were the result of the influence of their drug on APOE rather than on another binding partner of the RxR protein. So we have used um, APOE knockouts. Um, so we've used cell type or we've used cell types that don't express any APOE. In addition, we've also used animal models that don't have any APOE. And we've shown that the effects, the effect that we saw with a wild type mouse or with a um, transgenic mouse um, is completely lost. So we know that it's an APOE dependent mechanism. So we know that we're activating LXR and PPAR, which regulate the expression of APOE. So Dr. Kramer has mouse models for Alzheimer's disease. These mouse models have some of the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's and display behavioral phenotypes similar to those seen in humans with Alzheimer's. She also has a drug that should, in a perfect world, rescue the behavioral and cognitive deficits seen in her mice. We asked her, are these behaviors improved? They are. Um, every single one is improved. So nesting, olfaction, contextual fear conditioning, as well as the Morris water maze are all um, improved after treatment. That's not all that's improved. Remember, Dr. Kramer's position is that the cognitive deficits in Alzheimer's disease arise from the presence of A-beta. If the behaviors of these mice are improved, we might expect to see decreases in the amount of beta amyloid in the brains of these mice. And we do. After just six hours of treatment, uh, Bexerotene was able to reduce soluble amyloid beta by about 25%. We looked at 3, 7, 14, 20, and 90 days. After the third day, there was a 50% reduction. And that number continued to fall um, until about to 75 to 70 to 75% at 14 days. So after just six hours of treatment with bexerotene, A-beta levels have decreased. After 14 days, the amount of beta amyloid in the brain is way down. That is absolutely phenomenal and phenomenally hopeful for future treatment of Alzheimer's disease. It is, but there's a bit of a catch. However, at 20 days of treatment, there was only about a 50% fall and by 90 days, there was kind of, there's almost a, a negligible change um, in insoluble levels of amyloid beta. Dr. Kramer just said that insoluble A beta eventually increases back to levels similar to that seen in the untreated mutants. It's not all bad, though. While inso insoluble A beta eventually begins to aggregate again in the treated animals, soluble A beta remains reduced. What's interesting to note, though, is that the soluble amyloid beta remained reduced about 25% regardless of the time um, treated. So three to 90 days, we still saw about a 25 to 30% reduction in soluble amyloid beta. So if soluble A beta remains down, the question is, why does insoluble A beta rebound to levels approaching that seen in the untreated mutants? What we believe is happening is that bexerotene is actually inducing its own breakdown. There's another kind of side of the story that we really didn't touch on in this paper, and that is the, the polarization of microglia. So microglia can have an activated phenotype, or they can have more of an alternative activation phenotype. And the alternative activation phenotype has further been broken down into more categories, one of which of those categories is an increase in phagocytosis or increase in phagocytic activity. What we've shown previously is that both LXR and PPAR have been shown to modulate the phenotypes of microglia, and because RXR is the heterodimer partner to both of those, 
um, we believe that activation of RXR will have the same effect. And we believe that bexarotene is also skewing the microglia in the brain to a more prophagocytic phenotype that may require a higher concentration of bexarotene. So we don't see that same effect of insoluble amyloid beta. To summarize the results and the mechanisms, bexarotene or bexarotene increases the amount of APOE in the brain, which leads to a reduction in soluble A-beta. Bexarotene can also activate, probably at a higher dosage, microglia to ingest and remove more of the insoluble amyloid plaques. Treatment with bexarotene in Dr. Kramer's mouse models of Alzheimer's disease showed transiently reduced levels of insoluble amyloid, uh, amyloid beta, persistently reduced levels of soluble amyloid beta, and improvements in the behavioral deficits that develop in Dr. Kramer's mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. The obvious question we asked Dr. Kramer, do you want to take this into human trials? Yes. In fact, uh, Dr. Gary Landreth and I have formed a company uh, to do just that. Um, we are in the funding stages of, of a phase one clinical trial. Uh, in this phase one, we would like to use cognitively normal individuals to make sure that our mechanism in humans is the same as it is in mice. Um, so we want to look to make sure that, yes, we are increasing APOE in, um, in the brain or actually in the uh, cerebrospinal fluid. Dr. Kramer also brought up one promising point in favor of the use of bixerotene. So this drug is currently on the market. It's been on the market for about right around 13 years, and it's, it's used to treat uh, patients with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. One of the side effects or two of the side effects are increased tri triglycerides as well as increases in cholesterol, cholesterolemia. But the, the doses that which we would like to try this drug um, may in fact be lower in people. So we believe that we could actually eliminate or reduce those side effects. So bexerotene is already on the market. The side effects are known and hopefully they won't be an issue in this case. We asked Dr. Kramer about one other complication with using bexerotene in this manner to treat Alzheimer's disease. Her mice, unlike humans suffering from Alzheimer's, do not exhibit cell death. Neurons don't die in her mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, unlike what actually happens in people. We asked her whether this was likely to make a difference in the utility of bexerotene treatment. It does appear that perhaps the early stages of the disease is, is considered reversible. It's possible that um, treating patients that are in the pathogenesis of the disease, this drug may not have an effect. We're obviously kind of out in the woods at this point. We need to do a lot more testing to figure that out. The good news is that as a re relatively slowly progressing disease, where years pass before symptoms emerge and more years pass while the phenotype progresses, there's a large window during which treatment with bexerotene might have a positive effect. This is all good and hopeful news. However, we've had hopeful news before. A few years back, there was a very promising clinical trial that tried to use antibodies to clear beta amyloid from the brain. Unfortunately, that trial didn't pan out. There are, according to Wikipedia, always a trusted source, always trusted, more than 800 clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease treatments currently underway. That's 800 clinical trials, including many more antibody studies. We asked Dr. Kramer what makes this approach different. The one thing that is important to keep in mind, I think, the antibody studies, uh, they're both passive and active antibody studies. And what happens in these is that you actually induce a brain response or an immune response to amyloid beta. So you're, you're inducing something that is a, not a normal function of the brain. And this has been shown to 
um, induce some, some poor side effects in some patients and has resulted in some clinical trials to fail. Um, that's obviously not what we're interested in, but what is different between the antibodies the clinical trials and our hopeful clinical trial for bexarotene is that with bexarotene or bexarotene, we're inducing a natural process in the brain. APOE and ABCA1 and ABCG1 are naturally found in the brain. Um, so this is a natural process. We're just enhancing it. Um, that's all. That's a big difference to the other studies that are out there. Um, we are just enhancing Mother Nature. That's the last question we have time for here on the Grok Science Show. Uh, Dr. Kramer, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Paige Kramer, formerly a graduate student working under Dr. Gary Landreth at the Case Western Reserve University, and now a scientist at Receptor Incorporated. Dr. Kramer was talking about her recent paper in the journal Science, APOE-Directed Therapeutics Rapidly Clear Beta Amyloid and Reverse Deficits in Alzheimer's Disease Mouse Models. If you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find us on the web by pointing your favorite search engine to the Grox Science Show. The Grox Science Show is also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. And if you want to email us, you can reach us at science at grox.net. Thanks for listening to us today, and if you email us, tweet us, or post to us on Facebook or our website, we'd love to listen to you. For the Grok Science Show, and for Charles Lee, Frank Ling, Elise Kovic, and Joanna Rao, I'm Forrest Gordon.